Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, April 25th. We're now into week one of strike action by over 100,000 federal workers across the country. We discuss the impact the strike is having on the average Canadian with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Late last week, it was revealed Prime Minister Justin Trudeau informed NATO that Canada will never meet the goal of 2% GDP in defence spending. We speak with Paul Mitchell, Professor of Defence Studies at the Canadian Forces College who believes the problem with our stance on defence spending as a nation is not cash, but rather culture. A possible WestJet strike is looming just ahead of a busy travel season and the union representing flight attendants have arranged rallies at four major Canadian airports to protest unpaid work. We discuss the current state of air travel and your rights as an airline passenger with the travel lady, Leslie Cater. It is the seventh day out on strike for more than 100,000 federal government workers. So talking about the impact the strike is having on all of us across Canada as a whole and joining us to discuss is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Hi, Mercedes. Hey, how are you? Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us as always. My pleasure. What needs to be done, do you think, or what will be done, if anything, at this point? Are we just going to let this play out? Are the feds going to step in and try to end this strike? I don't see that on the immediate horizon, and part of that is just simply because of this government's brand. Um, When they came into power, they actually changed some laws to make unions more powerful. They have again and again courted uh, and looked for the backing of the unions when they're running in federal elections. They're going to want that again. Um, So I don't think that something like back-to-work legislation is going to be high on their agenda. And that's also what we've been hearing from the government. They have been taking a tougher tone publicly. You heard uh, the the, uh, person who's in charge of the Treasury Board, what they call the president, but really she's a cabinet minister, Mona Forche, saying that you know they were dragging the union to the table, kicking and screaming. Um, that is sort of a, a glimpse of them getting a little bit harder in their tactics with the union. They continue to put out press releases, so do the union. Both sides say that they are making progress, but they're still stuck on the really big things. And those are things like working from home and the size of the pay raise. Um, so I was reading a press release yesterday from the government from Mona Forche chasing look we've we've made what they think are very reasonable offers i don't know how much more they're going to move on those big things uh, or how long they're willing to let this go on but obviously for folks who are hoping to renew their passport uh, in particular for summer vacation this is a bit of a concern the cra stuff could go for even longer i'm told because canada revenue agency is sort of a different division in all of this um, unfortunately no that doesn't mean you get a break on when you had to have your taxes mm-hmm. in by though Okay, yeah, you mentioned those two areas uh, for sure, uh, Mercedes, when it comes to the passports and, of course, our taxes. What about those folks who depend on, you know, EI or CPP? Are we seeing any impact at this point or can we expect to see an impact for those folks? There's none that I'm aware of in terms of those payments, which should largely uh, be automated. But of course, as you're putting new ones in, um, it's a question of when they come out. I mean, strikes only been in place for a week. Um, So it's, you know, anecdotally, I'm not familiar with anything. Of course, there's always things that start to pop up day by day as this is going on. A certain number of people are always declared essential workers. So these departments have not completely emptied out when you're talking about the CRA uh, or people who are making sure that people are getting um, paychecks uh, from from the government, i.e. those who still are working for the government or in the forms of things like EI and CPP that they're getting uh, their payments from the government. So there are still essential employees. It's just that there are a lot fewer of them. And as the strike goes on, I think we'll get a better idea of, of how it may be impacting people.
I mean, Ottawa is kind of obviously the hub for the federal employees, you know, but when we're hearing things like don't even bother applying for a passport, it's going to get lost in the system. So don't don't even waste your time applying. Does it feel like in Ottawa across the country, are you hearing Canadians are supportive of this strike? I think it really depends on who you ask. I think a lot of Canadians are um, empathetic with the idea that wages have not kept uh, pace with the increasing cost of living. A lot of folks are frustrated that their salaries are not going up even close to the rate of what their groceries, their gas, or their rent is. Uh, but when you start to talk about the impact on people who are at home and, and trying to get basic services fulfilled, and they can't do that, the union knows they kind of have a, a ticking clock on how long they can push this. And so does the federal government, uh, because they'll be held responsible too as it goes on, um, where people understand sort of the frustration. A lot of folks have had to go back to the office too who didn't want to. They might be sympathetic to that with the unions. But the union's also facing, you know, an uphill battle in a way with public relations because, well, having them go, you know, to battle for higher wages could theoretically benefit everyone because it's someone getting a higher wage in a very public way. Um, at the same time, they know that they're going to to run out of that sympathy quickly with people who aren't getting that raise, with people who can't work from home, for people who had to go into the office or their place of work every day for the last two years of the pandemic. Um, so I think it's really a, a delicate balancing act there between people understanding the frustration with a large objective and then sort of how much they're willing to tolerate. Mm-hmm. Switching gears, Mercedes, and late last week, Prime Minister Trudeau came out and uh, told NATO that Canada will never meet our military spending goal. Uh, the optics of this, how does this reflect on Canada in the eyes of our allies, um, you know, and, and what would it take for us to meet those goals, Mercedes? Well, our allies are not surprised, um, would be what I've heard from our allies. I think that they were a little bit surprised this allegedly was said. Keep in mind, no Canadian outlet has been able to confirm that the Prime Minister actually said those words, but we've been nowhere near our NATO target for years. I think, don't quote me on this, we're at 1.29%. And that's with big defense spending. And, and I, I, I want to put a big qualifier on that. Big defense spending being the announcements of things like $1.4 billion, uh, for JTF2, Canada's Special Forces Unit, to get their super old, falling apart training ground, which is not how you might imagine where the Special Forces uh, are training, uh, back into shape. Money for the F-35. A lot of money. But you know what? If we don't spend it, there's just simply no Air Force in a couple of years. Um, So this has been an ongoing serious frustration with our allies for years. I've spoken to both the American and Turkish governments uh, quite a bit in in the last six months. And what is reflected in these documents about the Turks being frustrated, for example, with how slowly Canada moved um, to try to help with the earthquake in terms of assets. The Americans' frustration on our spending, frustration uh, that publicly one thing is said, but privately other things are said. Um, it, It starts to create real concerns about not only Canada's ability to defend itself, because we happen to live next to the U.S., which will do that, but our credibility with allies and our influence at the table if they don't believe that we are pulling our fair share of the weight. Now, it's it's quite possible Canada will never get 2%. We haven't been close to that for decades. Um, but on the other hand, we are now in another era. Uh, and there is a demand and an expectation from our allies who are stepping up. They will see Canada do the same. So I think it was revealing of the frustration behind the scenes, which is different from what we say publicly when, you know, Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau come out and say we're the best of friends. That behind the scenes, the Americans are saying, you know, Canada's military capabilities are degrading and it doesn't seem like they have any intention uh, of getting up to a level that, that they should be expected to be at.
Mercedes, uh, last question for you before we let you go uh, in relation to guns. Uh, the federal New Democrats coming under pressure to support the Liberals enacting a permanent ban on assault-style firearms. Uh, um, we know Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino will appear today at Commons Public Safety Committee. They're looking at gun control legislation. Is this going to go forward, does it look like? I think there's still a big question mark there. Nothing um, in terms of new legislation will go forward towards the summer. Keep in mind the assault-style uh, things uh, when we're talking about long guns. That is separate and was before. And then they tried to sort of add new ones and slip it in with the handgun legislation, and that didn't go well, and I think they've learned from that. Um, the NDP has been very clear on their position on gun control when it comes to certain what they call assault-style uh, long arms. Uh, there is a little bit more wiggle room around adding things and, and softness in NDP support there. And the reason why is that the NDP has a lot of rural ridings. Um, and those are places where long guns are used on farms, on ranches, uh, by people who live in remote areas where there's not police nearby. And they're very much seen as a tool. And it's quite different from talking about a handgun in the city uh, in terms of, of how the people who own them view them. Um, and certainly I know lots of gun owners are, are very passionate about their hobbies and that's not to exclude the handguns, but there's sort of a different perception of it being a tool. So it'll be interesting to see what the NDP does with it. At this point, really, the Liberals need to rethink a lot of their legislation that they were planning because it didn't go as planned. Uh, and I think they'll be a lot more careful with what they come forward with this time. Mercedes, thanks for your time and have a great Tuesday. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Canadian security professionals are calling for the Canadian government to, to meet NATO defence spending goals. But according to our next guest, the problem isn't cash, but rather culture. Joining us to discuss is Paul Mitchell, Professor of Defence Studies, Canadian Forces College. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning. Well, let's break this down here. How... And why, I guess, has Canada failed to meet NATO's goal of 2% of GDP in defense spending? So I would say that the principal problem essentially are Canadians themselves. Uh, defense policy and, and defense spending are one of the least uh, concerns of them, politically speaking. Uh, and governments of all political stripes take their cue from the electorate uh, and generally don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. So when we talk about the fact that, you know, it's culture that's involved in the lack of spending or the lack of meeting the goal for NATO, what do we mean by that culture part of this puzzle, Paul? So essentially, uh, what I mean is the, the political inclinations that really stem from the broader political environment, and, and which is essentially um, um, uh, stems from our, our geopolitical uh, situation in, in North America. Uh, this is a profoundly secure place on the planet. Uh, we're surrounded by three oceans. We're guarded. Our southern border is guarded by a superpower. Uh, and when Canadians look around uh, at the, uh, their day-to-day -day life, uh, they see things like problems with their health care systems, problems with taxations, the fiscal status of the government, uh, infrastructure. All of these sorts of things resonate much more strongly with Canadians than, than their defense situation. When you look at uh, Australia, for example, uh, Australia commits far more resources to its uh, its uh, defense forces, despite the fact that uh, they're similar si we're similar sized countries, comparatively speaking. Uh, we come from similar cultural backgrounds, and uh, the, um, um, the the economies are are roughly uh, there's a little bit smaller, but roughly similar. 
uh, and yet they they are much more interested in their in their defense situation because of their isolation. Uh, again, we we're, we have three oceans and a superpower uh, guarding our borders, and and therefore Canadians don't feel insecure when they when they look around, uh, and they vote uh, or they and they they uh, vote accordingly. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, Paul, in the sense that uh, the isolation that Australia experiences, being a similar sized nation, that that's great. Uh, but uh, to your point, our neighbors have some firepower. Absolutely. But could we not argue that they, although we packed up the Cold War, what is needed globally now uh, doesn't just have Canadians saying, OK, well, the U.S. will protect us if there's anything that happens on, you know, on, on our side of the fence here. Uh, but that we are needed much more to, to shell out some cash for those battles now with the, the resurgence of issues in uh, Ukraine, for example. I think you and I could agree uh, that that statement is broadly true, uh, and in fact, defense is more like an insurance policy than it is, uh, a, 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 you know, uh, uh, than, than any other sort of uh, a government program because you're you're basically investing uh, in future capabilities rather than paying for capability that that you're going to get immediately right now. The big problem that that comes with spending uh, is that no government has really ever articulated what our military is actually for since the end of the Cold War. Uh, we've we've had various calls uh, that that the Canadian forces should be uh, focused on constabulary uh, jobs. Uh, others have called uh, that that says that uh, it should really be refocused around national emergencies and and uh, um, uh, things like um, you know forest fight forest fires and floods and such. Uh, there are others that have said that it should be around peacekeeping. And then, as you just pointed out, that we should be stepping up and, and joining with our allies uh, in, and lending our, our uh, strength to, to, to causes such as, uh, you know, the, the, the security of Europe or, and now increasingly concerns in, in the Indo-Pacific. The, the challenge, however, is, uh, is having that conversation on a national level uh, and in terms of trying to decide what we want our military to do. Uh, and the biggest challenge, I would say, for Canada is because we sit in between the Pacific and uh, the Atlantic, we, the, the, we have the Arctic to the, to the north of us, uh, and, and often a lot of problems in the Caribbean to the south. Everybody wants a piece of us. Uh, the trouble is, is that ca Canadians and Canada really don't have the resources to be all things to all people. And so we need to make some really hard choices about what it is we want to do and what we're going to commit to. Right now, the government has just released an Indo-Pacific strategy, which is really stepping up the game uh, in the Pacific area, uh, committing three frigates to going over to uh, in the Indo-Pacific region uh, for the next five years. Uh, deployments uh, for the Navy, deployments for the Air Force, a lot more exercises for the, uh, the, the Army in that area. The trouble is, is that there's still going to be calls to support things like Latvia in Europe, uh, and certainly the, uh, the Arctic looms over everything as climate change shapes the game up there. Uh, we can't do all of these things, particularly all at once. Uh, and so we really need to have a debate in this country about what it is our military is for and what Canada wants to do uh, over the next uh, the, the coming decade. It's a very, very good point. And yeah, and what appetite do Canadians have for more military and more spending on the military? It definitely a, a, an ongoing conversation. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Paul. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Paul Mitchell, Professor of Defence Studies at the Canadian Forces College. 
a potential WestJet strike coming up. Really high prices if you want to fly anywhere. And then discussions over passenger rights when it comes to airlines. She can break it all down for <laughs> us because she is the pro and her name is Leslie Cater, of course. You know her as the travel lady. Hi, Leslie. Hi, good morning, Sue. Uh, I'm glad to chat with you because there's so much going on. Do you want to talk about and just touch on first a possible WestJet strike? I mean, we don't really have much information at this point, correct? No, we don't. And, and they are still negotiating. So hopefully this can be averted. Uh, but I did come across something interesting when I was on Air Canada's website yesterday that I suddenly noticed they have cancel your flight booking for any reason, no reason required. You can cancel for up to 24 hours prior and you get a full refund and you have to purchase this $139 per flight. I thought, I haven't come across this before. How convenient yeah. that that is now. Now, if, you, if you've got a place where you have to be and you booked on WestJet, maybe you book an Air Canada flight and then you just cancel it 24 hours prior and you get your money back. It's going to cost you $139, but maybe it gives you some peace of mind. <laughs> All right. Yeah, still 139 bucks. Yeah, oh, come still, on. Yeah. That's gross. Um, but uh, along the same lines when it comes to, to flying right now, and again, we're focusing on WestJet when it comes to the pilots, mm -hmm. this flight attendant rally that we're hearing about at four major Canadian airports right. to protest unpaid work, is this include you know, the, the consortium of different airlines when it comes to flight attendants, or is it dependent on the uh, airline? Uh, no, the, this is all the uh, flight attendants. It's CUPE, their, their union, who is putting this together. It's a bit scary, really, because with the pilot uh, strike being threatened, now this is almost like flight attendants are saying, hey, guys, don't forget about us. Leslie, I wanted to touch on the, the passenger rights changes. Is it really going to make any difference to us? I mean, we're hearing it about it because it's coming out, out of Ottawa and the Fed's so excited, but really, what does it mean for us? Well, I don't think it's going to mean much at all, honestly. It's going to put more onus on the airlines to prove whether or not it was within their control. That's going to cost money for them to do administratively, which at the end of the day we know is going to cost us more money. So I, I don't think it's a, a solution at all. And all these airline issues, as Shay pointed out earlier on, we need more competition in Canada. So that's it. That's it. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Something we've talked about on this program um, many times, it is surrounding, I believe, in the, even the past couple of weeks here, was, you know, the insurance that we might be getting when it comes to travel. I'm just wondering if you know, and I don't want to put you on the spot, Leslie, mm -hmm. but, for example, if I had a trip planned and I was very excited about, you know, June 5th, of flying to, to uh, Texas, for example, for vacation. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I can't get my passport in time. Would, for example, travel insurance cover that, that the government couldn't get me my passport in time? Well, you know, that's a good question because insurance generally will not cover something which they call a known event. So if you knew you were traveling, when the, at the time you booked that ticket, shouldn't you have already been assured that you have your passport updated? That that might fall between the cracks, really. It, w it would be a, a difficult one. Yeah, uh, we've had people who've had this problem. Certainly, they didn't have insurance, but it caused a lot of disruption for them. This was on the previous slowdown. So, yeah, check those passports, guys. You never know when somebody's mm -hmm. going to say, hey, come with me on my amazing private yacht. <laughs> okay. Yes, Leslie, when are we leaving? Uh, and it is a good idea to call the pros, too, when you want to book something this these days to oh, yeah. be extra careful. <laughs> and you can call and check in, of course, with Leslie. 
Educator, thetravellady.ca or at thetravellady. Thanks, Les. Have a great day. Thanks so much. You too. She is Leslie Cater.